Thank you for being with us at the Hills today. I am pumped about Harvest Weekend. Uh, the outreach of this church around the world is amazing, and the vision is at times overwhelming. And you may not know much about Harvest. It's that weekend every year where, besides our weekly tithes and offerings, we go above and beyond to give to fund outreach for the kingdom of God around the world, here locally and to the ends of the earth. And I want you to be a part of what God is doing here. I'm thankful to be a part of a church where we give away more money than we keep to fund our own ministries. And we're going to give $1.6 million that weekend for outreach. Now, my wife and I, we tithe every week to this church. But every year at Harvest, we go way above and beyond, and we give at Harvest, and we've never regretted a single dollar we've given to the mission of God, and you won't either. Now, if you're new, you don't know a lot about the good things this church is doing. So get one of those brochures, read about it, pray up on it, and we're going to have a great weekend together. Because when I think about what this church is trying to do, it seems impossible. we're, We're trying to to grow to 30 missionaries. We're trying to build a Christian university in Africa. We're trying to plant churches, even cross-cultural churches right here in America. And it does seem a little overwhelming, but then I remember that we serve a God that is greater than impossibility. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. Now, I do recognize there are times when it is healthy to acknowledge and accept impossibility. I heard a story, for example, of an old guy. He's out of shape and overweight and decides to check out a gym membership. So he's getting a tour with the trainer when he spots a young, very attractive woman. She's very fit. And he says to the trainer, now, what machine in here should I use to impress that lovely young woman over there? And the trainer looked him up and down and said, I would try the ATM in the lobby. Because sometimes it's just good to accept reality. For example, (coughs) it doesn't matter how much I train. It doesn't matter how much I want it. I'm never going to dunk a basketball. That's impossible. But there is a sense in which the acceptance of impossibility can lead to a kind of captivity. You see, as Christians... We view reality through the lens of a greater reality. We see life through the lens of faith. Now, faith is not always logical, but faith is not illogical. Faith is theological. In other words, faith is looking at reality, bringing God into the equation. And the God of the Bible is consistently revealed as being greater than impossibility. (laughs) And if you find that hard to accept, you're in good company. (coughs) Our story starts with a man named Abram. He lived in Ur. He and his wife were old. They wanted kids. They didn't have any. They left their country. They left their culture. All for a promise, a promise that they would become parents. But after 20 something years in this new home, 
They have no kids and they have no prospects because they know their bodies. They knew their bodies were past the point where pregnancy was a possibility. And then one day, three men come down the road and Abram does not know that one of these men is the Lord God incarnate. And he hosts them and he serves them a meal. And look at what happens now in Genesis 18, starting in verse 9. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. And then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years. And Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? You see, Sarah had never personally heard God make the promise in the first place. She'd only heard it secondhand. It was always God talking to Abraham. And she has year after year waited on this promise that's never happened. And her biological clock was not winding down. It had stopped ticking. And she's thinking maybe the old man has just been out in the sun too much. And then finally she hears the word of God. You see, Sarah had assumed that her lack of fertility was the end of God's possibility. She's like a lot of us. She believed in God, just like you do. But like some of us, she had accepted barrenness as normal, as her future. And she needed to be reminded of a reality that was greater than her own. And so, verse 13... Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. God was saying, I can do Whatever I want, whenever I want, wherever I want, if I want. Now we call this the, um, uh, the almightiness of God, the omnipotence of God. And please don't stop me later and ask me some nonsensical question like, well, can God make a rock so big that even God can't lift it? Okay. The Bible is clear. Some things God cannot do, like lie or do evil, okay? <clears throat> but God can do anything consistent with his nature and his will. And the thing is, you know it's politically correct in church to agree with that. You know you're supposed to say God can do anything. But then we deal with reality. And so often we act like in our reality, God is retired. 
And so I hear Christians say things like, well, things are just never going to change. You know, it is what it is. And besides, that would take a miracle. Back in the 1870s, there was a conference at Westfield College. And the president talked about the innovations the future could bring and said, I even believe someday that man will fly through the air like birds. And there was a Methodist bishop named Wright who stood up and said, that is heresy. The Bible says that flight is reserved only for the angels. Now, you've never heard of Bishop Wright. You have heard of his two sons, Wilbur and Orville. And how sad that it's often the church that serves the almighty God announcing what isn't possible. So let me ask you, what's on your that's impossible list? I know what was on Sarah's. What's on yours? Where have you given up? Where have you just decided, well, it is what it is. And your reality has become greater than God's possibility. You see, when Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven... He's not so much talking about God's address, but God's authority. He's saying God doesn't live in this world. God lives outside of this world. So he is not bound by the limitations of this world. So guys, when you pray, the first thing you acknowledge is that God is not bound to what seems possible in this reality. There is a reality that is greater than this reality. Reality, And that's why Jesus could say rather matter of factly in Luke 18, God can do things that are not possible for people to do. There is no mission impossible list in heaven. Let me share with you, for example, some things that seem impossible for us that are not possible too hard for God. Salvation. Salvation is mission possible. And a lot of Christians don't believe that. Their lack of assurance regarding their eternity reveals a lack of their theology, that their theology is missing grace. And if your gospel is lacking grace, it is a lesser than gospel. Uh, In 2010, the Chicago Bears put on their website their head coach, Lovey Smith, addressing players in training camp for the football team. And in one of the speeches, he's talking to about 19 rookies. Now, they were only going to keep six or seven rookies on the team. So in essence, his speech to them was, make me put you on this team. Perform in such a way that you show me you are better than all these other guys. Take the decision out of my hands. And I wonder how many people think God makes that speech. You want on my team? Prove you belong. 
Show me you're doing better than all the other people down there. Take the decision out of my hands. You see, this was the prevailing theology in the days of Jesus. That you made God's team by showing you were better than everybody else. And so it made perfect sense then when this young, moral, religious guy comes up to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, to the disciples, if anybody can make the team, this guy can. But Jesus rocks their world and says to that guy, you don't get it. God wants the heart. And he doesn't have yours left. And when that guy walked away sad, the disciples were stunned. And they said this question to Jesus in Matthew 19, 25. Well, if he can't make the team, who then can be saved? You see, the reason people question their salvation is we're asking the wrong question. What must I do? How can I show you, God, I'm better than the other people that want on the team? And what God has to do, just like he did for Sarah, is get our eyes off of ourselves and onto him. So notice how Jesus answers their question in the next verse. He looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible. Now, let that sink in. It is not possible for you to make God's team. You're never going to be good enough. Get that. You can't earn your way into status with God. But with God, all things are possible. See, the question is not what must I do? The question is what has God done and what is God doing to make salvation possible and I'm going to tell you what I finally got that it changed my life it completely changed my walk with God when I stopped asking what must I do and I started rejoicing in what God has done. Now I get verses like 2 Timothy 1:12. I know whom I believed, and I'm convinced he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. Or Hebrews 7:25. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Or Jude 24 and 5, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. My God's power to save is greater than my own capacity to stumble. And so I like the story of the obnoxious businessman in the expensive car, not sure where he is driving in the Midwest, and he pulls to the side of the road and yells at a tractor, who was, I mean, a farmer on a tractor to get off and stop the engine and says, hey, buddy, 
If I keep going down this road, will I get to St. Louis? And the farmer says, I don't know. Well, will I get to Kansas City? Well, I don't know. Well, what city will I get to if I keep going down this road? The farmer says, I just don't know. And frustrated, the businessman says, well, you just don't know much, do you? And the farmer said calmly, well, I know I ain't lost. (laughs) And that's what I know. Because nothing's impossible for God. And his power to save is greater than both sides of the grave. It's not just greater than my need for salvation after I die, but it's greater than the kind of living I could settle for now. You see, in God, liberation is mission possible. God does not want you to become accustomed to barrenness. He wants you to step into the kind of abundant life for which you were purposed. So there's this great story in the Old Testament about Jeremiah. And he's in prison. And Jerusalem is surrounded by the Babylonians. Now, earlier the northern tribes had been taken captivity by the Assyrians and they had disappeared. They'd never come back. Now it looks like it's about to happen to the southern tribes. And he's in jail, and one of his relatives comes up to him and says, you want to buy my field? And he's thinking, why in the world would I want to buy your field when we're about to be destroyed as a nation? And God says to Jeremiah, buy the field. And Jeremiah's thinking, what good's that going to do? And God says, buy the field. It's a sign to my people that I will bring them out of captivity. And this is what God says in Jeremiah 32. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. I am the Lord, the God of all mankind, not just Israel. Is anything too hard for me? God is saying there is no kind of captivity that does not bow before me. And so you see, when I meet a chained Christian, then I have met someone who has been deluded by a lesser than reality. We've learned that when the planes flew into the towers on 9-11 and the foundations were rocked, that the structure shifted in such a way that many people were trapped inside their offices. The doors jammed and sealed. And some of those people were rescued. Do you know how? Rescue workers literally came right through the walls. Now, here was the situation. Those walls were built and painted in such a way as to look like they were concrete. They were just sheetrock. Those people trapped inside thought there was no possible way to escape. And it was there the whole time. And so Jesus showed up to a world in bondage. People captive to sickness, and he spoke, and they were healed. People captive to sin, and he spoke, and addictions were broken. Even captive to demons. Demons never debated Jesus. Now, preachers did, because preachers aren't as smart as demons. But demons bowed to a greater reality. And God's greater than exclamation point was the resurrection. 
And I bet almost all of you here would tell me you believe in the resurrection of Jesus. But are you living a resurrected life? Or have you accommodated your life to some lesser than power? And like Sarah just decided that barrenness is your future. The Bible says in Ephesians 1, I pray also you'll understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. It's the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. One of the absolute joys of my job is to see people who have lived a less than abundant life in Christ finally discover and step into the freedom they were always supposed to know. I read recently a blog by a minister named James Emery White. He said a young woman in his church called and said, I was going to put my offering in the plate this Sunday, but could I just bring it by and give it to you? He said, well, sure, I guess. It was a Thursday. And he, she came by, but he was in a meeting, so she just left an envelope at the front desk. He went out later and he saw it. And the reason he noticed it was because there was a note on it, be careful, sharp objects inside. And so he opened it and he pulled out a plastic bag full of razor blades. And a letter. I've been coming to your church on and off now since I was in fifth grade. And I'm now 23. And when I was 12 years old, I started cutting myself. My arms are covered in an overwhelming amount of scars. I haven't cut in probably a year now. But I still had razor blades hidden around my room. And I quit when I was about to cut one day and I heard Jesus in my ear saying, I bled enough. And he took my pain on the cross and I no longer needed to take it out on myself. But I realized by holding on to razor blades, I'm not fully letting go of the pain and addiction to cutting. And I want to fully let it go now. And it says in the Bible, cast all your anxiety on him for he cares for you. So I'm doing that today. I'm offering Jesus more than any amount of money I could ever offer him. These are all my razor blades that I've kept hidden around in different places just in case. I'm handing it over to God, and I'm trusting you with it as well. Thank you for all you and this church have done in my life. And he ended his blog with this line. And now you know I do what I do. And I have the greatest job in the world. Because I get to see some of you step into this kind of freedom. And sometimes I have the saddest job in the world because I have to watch some of you settle for it is what it is. And you don't have to accept it is 
what it is if what is is not what God wants. And that's not just true for you. It's true for the whole universe. Because the Bible says restoration is mission possible. See, this world is so fallen and it's so broken and it's so evil that it's tempting to turn the gospel into a message of escapism. Let's just hang on, little church, and someday we'll all fly away. That's not God's gospel. You read the Bible at the very start. It was God's purpose and God's will that he live in intimate fellowship with his sons and his daughters on a good, curse-free earth. Now, show me anywhere in the Bible where God gave up on that plan. Where he ever said, well, I guess the devil blew that up. I have to go with plan B. The Bible says that God is going to have what he wanted. Look at what Peter says in Acts 3.21. That Jesus must reign in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. As he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Go read the prophets. They talk about it. The lion's going to lie down with the lamb. And the child's going to play with the snake. And paradise lost is going to be paradise regained. Because God is going to reconcile all things back to himself through Jesus Christ. It is the ultimate restoration movement. And that is why Christians must reject what is now being called normal as perversely abnormal. And I heard a story of a young pastor and he had taken over a church in a bad part of town in the inner city. And he looks out his office window and he sees streets of violence and crime and poverty. And he's crying. And an older member comes in and spots him and puts his arm around him and says, don't worry, pastor. After a while, you will get used to it. And he says, I know. And that's why I'm crying. We don't have to get used to it. There's a reality that is greater than this reality. So we have to reject the lie that things have to stay the way they are. And so we hit our knees and we ask for our God to do the seemingly impossible. We pray to a God who is out of this world. And so he's not limited by this world. And we pray this to this God in Matthew 6, 10, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is now in heaven. Because we don't believe it's God's will that babies are starving today. We don't believe it's God's will that children die from treatable diseases and unclean water. We don't believe it's God's will that over half of our marriages are ending in divorce. We don't believe it's God's will that there are villages all over the world that haven't even heard the name of Jesus yet. That's why we have a 2020 vision. Because after we hit our knees, we hit the streets and we go out and we partner with God to begin the work of getting the world back to the world he created and wants. And we do this not just because we have great faith in God, but because we have faith in a great God. So I want to ask you again, what's on your That's impossible 
list. Isn't it amazing? We can believe all the stories in our Bibles about how God did the impossible for somebody else. But rule out that possibility for ourselves. We're like Zechariah. He was a priest. And he believed the Bible. He believed that God gave a baby boy to Abraham and Sarah, even when they were too old to have kids. And he would get the children of his village around and he would teach them that story many times. And then one day he's in the temple and the angel Gabriel shows up and says, Zachariah, you and your wife are going to have a baby boy. He says, that can't happen. We're too old. And the angel says, oh, shut up. And he did for about nine months. And we're so much like him, forgetting that the stories in the Bible of God's mighty works aren't to teach us how powerful God was, but to teach us how powerful God is. But in that same chapter, the angel shows up to a young girl, a teenage virgin, and gives her the word of an even more impossible pregnancy. One that doesn't even involve a man. And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For nothing is impossible with God. And look at her response. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. You see, Mary believed in a reality greater than her reality. And so she was ready for any possibility. It's baseball time, and so we're watching a lot of good games. I'm reminded of a story of Leo DeRocher, Hall of Fame manager, who was asked one time, who's the greatest player you ever managed? Who'd you like the most? Now, he managed some great Hall of Fame players. He said, Dusty Rhodes. And said, Dusty Rhodes? He wasn't even a full-time player. He was a bench player, pinch hitter. He said, yeah. But when the game was on the line, when the pressure was high, when it seemed like all was lost and the cause was impossible, when the other players were averting their eyes when I looked down the bench to see who could go in, Dusty would always look forward and he'd smile and he'd tap his bat as if to say, I'm ready, coach. Put me in. And so let me ask you, what's on your I'm available list? As we look in a world so full of so much that's so broken and it seems so impossible, where do you hear the call of God to step in? And say, 
I'm available. Use me. You say, well, I couldn't make much difference. Don't live your life thinking the best you can do is the best it can be. Because there are other possibilities. You see, Sarah did have that baby. Because God always gets the last laugh. And so I'm going to ask you now to stand with me. And we're going to read a word together. A word that honors the Lord. The Lord that is above our reality and not limited by our world because he made it. And after we read this word, it's your time to come and accept Jesus. Salvation is mission possible to confess him and be baptized while we sing over you a song about the awesomeness of our God. Let's read this word. Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm Nothing is too hard for you. Let's say that again. Nothing is too hard for you. Now, if you really believe that, say it one more time. Nothing is too hard for you. Let's praise that God while you come.